You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. One of the things that drew me to open banking is its potential to create non-zero-sum outcomes. A non-zero-sum outcome is a situation where one person's win does not necessarily mean another's loss. In contrast to a zero-sum outcome, where for there to be a winner, there must also be a loser, a non-zero-sum scenario makes it possible for all parties to gain. Ideally, this is what open banking aims to achieve. On the one hand, it opens up the playing field to more competition and innovation, increasing the size of the overall pie. On the other, it makes banking more inclusive and accessible, ensuring that more and more people get a piece of that pie. A non-zero-sum outcome. One that helps the economy, but also helps society at large. It is this second goal, the improvement of society, which will be our focus on this episode. To explore how open banking can be used to do good. There is little doubt that banks today provide some form of social good. But, as you'll hear from our guest, they could be doing a lot more. Thanks to digital and mobile technology, the cost of running a bank and distributing bank products has gone way down. Suddenly, it has become possible to offer financial services to people who never had them before, or much better services to those who have perhaps been let down by banks in the past. In our last episode, we talked about the unbanked, those who have no connection to the banking system at all. But this is only one facet of where banking could do more good. There are also those in lower incomes, those who have disabilities, those stuck in debt traps. So many people have special needs when it comes to financial services. Needs that, if met, could make a huge difference in their lives. Not through aid or welfare, but by providing them with genuine economic opportunity. At its best, that is where open banking is leading us. A world where banking is used not only to generate wealth, but at the very same time, to do good. Faith Reynolds has been in open banking since the very beginning. Having had multiple roles in the financial space, Faith has worked on a multitude of unique challenges aimed at making financial services better, ranging from enforcement and redress all the way through to accessibility, vulnerability, and other issues concerning financial inclusion. 
Today, Faith is on the board at Fair For All Finance, as well as helping to drive the current account switch service at pay.uk. Faith, thank you for being here and welcome to Mr. Open Banking. Hi there, Ayal. Really pleased to join today. Thanks for having me. Let's jump in. In your view, does the global financial services industry of today provide a social good? Well, I think it would be hard to argue that they don't provide a social good. I think it's very clear that financial services are a a core part of society, especially in the UK with the Global Centre for Financial Services being in in London. It's a, a really important part, not just of providing a social good in our communities, but also in terms of being a real earner for the UK. I think it would be really hard to argue that it doesn't provide a social good. However, I think it would be also somewhat limiting to say that it provides as much social good as it could. And there are questions, especially here in the UK, about given the nature of its utility-like characteristics, i.e. you kind of need a bank account to be socially included and financially included, should it actually be a utility? Should we be calling it a utility and regulating it as such? What do you think they could be doing better specifically? generally speaking, is that it needs to work much more closely and be much more closely aligned to what consumers need. And I suppose there's three particular areas that I would focus on. And actually, one of the the initiatives I'm involved in is with the Finance Innovation Lab in the UK. And I'm a senior fellow there. And this is really inspired by some of their work. But, But specifically, I think we'd like to see financial services, and I'd like to see financial services, delivering much more closely to what we as individuals and people need, getting much closer to our lives and thinking about how we work in communities. Secondly, we could do with finance that's much more productive. So we see lots of investments, but we need to channel that investment into productive uses of money and and seeing sort of SMEs being able to access the loans that they need. SME lending has always been a problem. So I think that's an area where we'd like to see financial services do more. And then I think the other area is really in thinking about how we channel investment. It's really important that we are thinking about climate change and about what we can do for the planet with financial services. So actually, financial services, we have seen investment going into the wrong places and into developing industries that aren't particularly good for the environment. And I think that now needs to change. So in terms of thinking about the social good, we're thinking about people and local communities, thinking about SMEs and business and about the planet. Interesting. You seem to refer to the mobility of money as much as to how it's used, that it needs to be channeled better and so on. Is that right? That's exactly right. When I'm putting my money into a pension, it's not going into a sort of like a, the concept of a pension. It's being channeled and it's been invested in lots of different companies around the world. And that makes, that makes the world work. That's part of its social good aspect. But we need to make sure that it's getting to the right places and being invested in the right ways so that we are creating a society that works for everybody and actually respects the, you know, the climate that we, we need in order to survive. You've been working on the social good side of financial services since long before open banking came to the scene. But when it did, you were right there. In 2018, you and your colleagues, along with many participating organizations, published the Consumer Manifesto for Open Banking. The opening words are, and I quote, 
Open banking should be a force for good. How can open banking be a force for good? One of the most important things that we're seeing in today's society is that we have this regulatory push to using uh, data for good. We have technology that enables data to be used for good in much cheaper, much quicker ways than we've previously had. And we've got people who need and want financial products that work for them. And so in terms of how do we ensure that open banking becomes a force for good, we just need to see those three areas aligning in a way that works for all parties and particularly in a way that drives accessible, affordable products for consumers. So if I think about the past, I would say that actually I've worked on financial inclusion for a number of years and some of the problems have been, well, you know, serving that particular customer group, well, it's kind of expensive and, you know, we can't really change the technology to do that very easily. That's a really expensive thing to do. Or, you know, the regulator saying, well, actually, commercially, it's just, oof, you know, the cost is just not viable. So we can't really push in that area. Whereas now, actually, it's much cheaper for companies to provide those services and for other new fintechs to come in and offer these new kinds of niche products without having to worry about the legacy systems that they have in the past. So you have this opportunity where actually we can get much more personalised, much more niche products being delivered at much lower rates. And I think that's the, the really important part is that we want to see more people financially included. We want to see more people, not just with access to products, but also being able to get value from those products and also being able to get the help they need so that they find themselves financially better off over time. Why don't you tell us a little more about the manifesto itself? I think one of the exciting things about the manifesto is that it was a collaborative process. So I chair the Open Banking Consumer Forum, and it was very clear quite early on that consumer organisations and those people representing consumers were very keen to see the positive in open banking, but also to really state what it is that they were looking for from financial services providers. You know, in the very first line, it's, it's really looking for more useful financial products, more affordable products, and also more understandable financial services. I think there is a time now that we are becoming less and less willing to put up with stuff we just don't understand. We don't have the time for it. We're looking for convenience and stuff that makes sense and is easily digested. So I guess one of the aspects is that we... And I say we, I'm kind of thinking about consumer organisations, but me too, as a consumer myself, I really want products and services to be upfront about how they're paid for and how they're going to use my data. And so we're thinking about financial services, we're thinking about big tech as well, and thinking about the kind of value that these firms get from our data. It's really important that that value exchange is fair. And so often there's an asymmetry of power and of value in financial services where I, as the individual consumer, cannot match the power or might of the company that I am buying a product from. And therefore I end up getting sold stuff that I either don't understand or can't negotiate and then have to put up with the consequences because I either take it or there's nothing else on the market that suits me. And so I think we're trying to move away from that, where actually there's a much fairer value exchange. Firms are upfront about how they're using data. So they get value from my data, but I also get a really valuable product that works for me and that actually is much more closely aligned to my needs. Something that is much more respectful. 
So the other things that we're really keen about on open banking is that it should be something because of this ability to create these more personalized products and provide people with new insight and new prompts and opportunities to take action in a convenient, easy way, that people should genuinely be equipped to do new stuff that they actually really do have control to use their data and get value from it. And that they're doing that in a way which is convenient and easily understood and a way that doesn't mean they're going to sort of face penalties. The key thing is security, obviously, that we want the products to be absolutely secure. I think data breaches should not become the norm. (laughs) I think we're all a little bit kind of used to data breaches, but actually they should be rare and exceptional and not the rule. One of the reasons that I think they do become so familiar to us is because we struggle like as human beings to understand the value of privacy and the value of our data. But we have yet to see what the social impact of our data sort of being all over the place is downstream. So safety and security is also really important and that when things go wrong, people know where they can get help and that they can get quick and free and simple help to redress. From the beginning, the idea of banking was meant to provide a social good. As banks evolve into digitally driven 21st century companies, the ways in which banking provides that social good is evolving as well. Through technology, banks are starting to provide finance that's a better fit for the needs of more kinds of customers. But there's still a long way to go. With these new tools, banks can do much more to help individuals, small businesses, local communities, and even the planet to prosper in a safe and sustainable way. And open banking has a big role to play. That's why in 2018, Faith and her colleagues at the Finance Innovation Lab, along with a host of partners, penned the Consumer Manifesto for Open Banking, an inspiring one-page statement that opens with the following words. Open banking should be a force for good, which promotes financial inclusion and widens access to more useful, affordable, and understandable financial services for everyone. Inspiring words to be sure. According to Faith, the manifesto can be boiled down into a single word. Respect. Banks, she says, as well as the providers who use their data, should be respectful of those who have chosen to share that data. They must be open about how they're using it and how they're generating value from it. And that exchange of value needs to be fair. That's what respect is all about. However, there is a big difference between more effective financial products and getting products to those who have never had them at all. That's where Faith and I pick things up, trying to define the different terms one hears when talking about open banking for good. Let's zoom in a little bit and start to peel the onion. Can you explain the difference between financial vulnerability and, say, accessibility and 
I'll throw in another one, inclusion. Those terms frequently all get kind of muddled up and some of them are beginning to be defined more in regulation and others are still quite sort of vague and open to interpretation. So if we start with vulnerability, the FCA has said that they define a vulnerable consumer as someone who, due to their personal circumstances, is especially susceptible to harm, particularly when a firm is not acting with appropriate levels of care. And they kind of note that there are four drivers of vulnerability. So they might be health, so that could be disabilities or illness, life events, so major life events like bereavements or job loss or getting divorced, those kinds of things. Um, resilience. So this is a low ability to withstand so financial or emotional shocks and then capability. So low knowledge of financial matters or low confidence in managing money. That's a sort of general definition of vulnerability and then some drivers of vulnerability. But I think is actually, yes, people do have some personal circumstances which might make them vulnerable. But sometimes actually it's more important to think about what they are vulnerable to. And that is more captured, actually, in the European definition of vulnerability, which incorporates the consideration that markets can create vulnerabilities. And so that's where the term becomes quite expansive, because not only could it be my situation, but it could also be the fact that firms create very complex products and they expect me to understand them and I don't. So immediately that creates a vulnerability. The market can make people vulnerable because it's complex, it's difficult to navigate. There's now an extra layer of decision making around whether or not I should share my data and what might happen with that when I don't understand the implications of the downstream. So there's lots of things that can create vulnerability. In the UK, the FCA, using its definition, calculates about approximately 2.4 million people who are vulnerable at any one point and 50% of the population could experience vulnerability. The second part you talked about was accessibility. And for me, I think accessibility is being able to access products and services. But the first line is, can you just access those geographically? Are they within reach? And whether it's geographically or whether that is, you know, am I digitally included? Can I access them? Do I have Wi-Fi? Today would not be possible if I didn't have Wi-Fi. But there are still some places in the UK that just can't access it. So there are some issues around just simple geography-based types of accessibility. Then I think there are issues around how can people access services themselves? So are they accessible for people with disabilities that we've talked about? But then I think, are they accessible in terms of, can you understand them um, and can you make sense of them? And then are they accessible in that, have you been excluded because you don't have the right characteristics? The other thing you talked about was inclusion. And I suppose that's where the relationship is. How do we talk about accessibility? What does it mean specifically? And then how do we talk about inclusion? If you have accessibility, do you de facto have inclusion? Or if there's a lack of accessibility, is, is it exclusion? And I think there's clearly a, a relationship between those things too. But for me, inclusion is more than just holding a product. It's being able to use it and get value from it. And this was something we noted back in the day when there was a financial inclusion task force in the UK back in the early 2000s. And it was really clear when we were looking at how can we help people access bank accounts, we wanted to increase the number of people who 
were not just opening, but using the facilities of the bank account. So this is the difference between having a bank account where you're able to use direct debits and standing orders and make payments and get the benefits of convenience and the lower pricing of products versus having a bank account, but having to take out all your money in cash, because ultimately you can't manage the inflexibility of automated payments and your income is not as stable as that of others. And actually, that's something we still struggle with today. So people might have access to products, but they might not be able to use the full facilities of them because they haven't been designed to meet their needs. And that, for me, is a really part of the social good aspect that we were talking about. People should also be able to use the facilities. They should be able to get utility. Another term you often run into when discussing financial inclusion is the unbanked. What is the relationship between this notion of inclusion and the unbanked or sometimes the underbanked? This is really the difference between holding a product or not holding a product. So unbanked means that you do not have a product at all. So you don't have a bank account. Underbanked means that you have a bank account, but you're not able to get the full value from it because it isn't flexible enough to meet your needs. So perhaps if I expand a little bit around some of the work that's been done over years looking at payments. So a while back, we had the Payment Strategy Forum and they identified some key detriments or harms in the payments industry. And one of those is really that people on low or unstable incomes, they can't use direct debits and they might struggle with standing orders too because the automated payment goes out from their account when they don't have money in it. And they might be ready to pay, but not ready to pay on that day. And there isn't enough flexibility to create some dialogue with the people that you need to pay to say, if you just wait a day, I can make the payment. So instead, you're using standard tariffs, which are much higher. This is what we call the poverty premium. If you haven't come across that already, Ale, it's the, the poverty premium, which is I pay more to access essential services. And that's unjust and unfair. And so if we're thinking about where we need to get to with financial services, we need to get to the point where actually the people who have least are not paying most to access them. So that was identified as a particular issue by the Payment Strategy Forum. It came up with a strategy that would introduce a new payment type called Request to Pay. And over the last little while that has been developed. The concept behind Request to Pay is that firms or utility providers would be able to ask for payment from a consumer and then they would be able to have some dialogue around that payment. So a consumer could say, yes, I'm ready to pay that right now, or actually, can you take half now and half tomorrow, or can you wait a few days because I'm not ready to pay? And so the idea was that it provides more control around the payment and also crucially opens up dialogue with the payee that doesn't quite know what's going on and why they're not getting their payments on time. And so that would give consumers the opportunity to access automated payments, but in a way that gave them control and gave the payee sort of certainty other usage and vantage points for that for businesses. So thinking about in terms of invoice payments. When you start with the needs of people who are in difficult circumstances and provide services for them, you begin to see actually there might be other use cases that we could apply this to. 
sometimes firms only want to pay part of an invoice because they're still uh, negotiating another part of the invoice or they don't want to pay it all up front because they don't feel that they have been invoiced the right amount first time. So there are these interesting sort of alternative use cases. The main point here being that in the first instance, we have payment types. They don't respond to the needs of those people who have low or unstable incomes. So we're having to think about how do we make payments work better for those people. Alongside that, we've had reviews into access to cash, which are saying, actually, you know what? Some people still use cash because payments, electronic payments, are not giving them the control that they need. They want to see the money in their pocket. So how can we create new payment types that work? Open banking for good means different things to different people, often introducing a whole new lexicon that can be difficult to navigate. Faith has provided us with a sort of roadmap, breaking down the most common terms. The first is vulnerability. Is your financial situation putting you in harm's way? Will your existing products support you? Or will they make the situation worse? Faith identifies the four key drivers of vulnerability. Health, life events, resilience, and capability. But she is quick to add that overly complex products can create vulnerability as well. Which brings us to the second term, accessibility. Can you get to the products you need? When you get to them, are they even offered to you? And, as per Faith's warning, do you understand the products you're getting? Finally, the third term, inclusion. Can you actually use the product effectively? Has it been designed with you in mind? Sure, you have it, but are you really getting value? More often than not, today's financial products fail these tests of vulnerability, accessibility, and inclusion. The fact is, most banks simply don't design their products with lower income or other special needs in mind. In fact, as Faith describes, it's often quite the opposite. Because the tools are not built to fit their needs, lower income people often end up paying more for financial services than anyone else an effect known as the poverty premium. We have to do better. And thanks to technology, we now can. Part of the promise of open banking is to show the way. Is it working? Let's go to Faith to find out. Much of your subsequent work since the manifesto like the 2019 white paper, Consumer Priorities for Open Banking, identify open banking as a way to remedy some of these inclusion challenges. How is this going? Have any of those goals been achieved? So in the report, we thought it would be useful to highlight um, the value of open banking to consumers. A lot of the reports we saw on the market from consultancies and and the typical commercial think tanks were really based around what the commercial value was going to be for firms. But we were interested to understand who would stand to gain most from open banking. And we looked at a data set in the UK um, run by our regulator, and we noted that there were key groups who we kind of described as on the margin. So these are people who 
don't have any borrowing, but they are on the edge of financial services and really do need more control over their spending. These are the people who are probably using cash because it's hard to get the control that they need. We really see a kind of value in open banking payments, payment initiation services, where people are able to see their balance before they confirm a payment. And this is really novel because obviously when you make a payment with your card, you don't have any view of what's in your account. And so one of the things that people find embarrassing is, is being a bit unsure of how much money is in their account, going to a you know, checkout to get your supermarket shopping and then having your card declined. So this is a new way that people can engage in digital payments and see their balance so that actually consumers can see what's in their pocket before they make a payment. Interesting. The way you describe seeing your balance before you issue a payment, it's like the data is being used to drive certain behaviors, certain socially beneficial behaviors. Is that right? Yeah, so that's exactly it. I think there's always been a bit of a tension between payer and payee. And one of the things that we're conscious of is actually that payees tend to pay for the uh, payment service providers. <laughs> and uh, they're the ones that choose what options a consumer has to pay with. And I think we know from, um, for instance, the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, Actually, spending is one of those things that's closely connected to our emotions. And people, for instance, with um, mental health problems may be more likely to spend late at night, maybe more likely to undertake spontaneous spending. And from a payee point of view, kind of commercial point of view, from a retailer, great spontaneous purchases, perfect. And the easier I make it to check out, the quicker we'll get some money in our pockets. Actually, there's a real concern around point of sale credit at the moment. So this buy now, pay later method, we're seeing a lot with Klarna and subscription traps, trying to get people to part with their money. And I think we see as actually open banking payments, although they provide that real convenience in terms of making a payment, could also provide control. And that's a real kind of social good. It would give somebody the opportunity to just see their balance and say, hang on a minute, is this a payment I want to make? Am I making it from the white account? Can I afford to make it? We talk about having died a little bit of grit in the shoes. It stops you from doing those things that you might be otherwise psychologically biased towards doing without thinking about. Fascinating. Friction for social good. And it is indeed that balance that in many ways open banking is trying to strike. Can you think of any other examples along those lines? We talk about how the use of data can help people have more visibility and control over their finances. So on a very basic level, having everything in one place, being able to aggregate all of your accounts in one place, gives you a single view of your financial situation. And that in itself just provides new insight. If you combine that with somebody that's help monitoring your account and can see that, okay, you could maybe reduce your household bills, get rid of these subscriptions, renew your insurance so you're not paying as much, or remember that you've come to the end of your savings rate, all of those kind of insights and prompts that come with having the ability for a third-party provider to access that data actually mean that it can predict, you know, right, you need to you'll change your product or you need to switch, or I'm going to help you with a recommendation of where you could go and get a better product, all of that makes it much easier for people to improve their financial situation. I think we see 
that there is the opportunity for improved financial decision making because people can see all of their finances in one place and they can get a insights into how they're spending. There's also the opportunity for people to access better credit. So reducing their cost of credit, managing down credit, managing debt. Open banking is being used quite regularly among affordable credit providers. So credit unions and community development finance institutions are using open banking to help people access cheaper credit, which they may not have been able to do perhaps with a usual kind of credit score. But it's also being used for well, money advisors. They're beginning to think about how can we use that to onboard people better, to get more accurate statements so that we can negotiate more easily with creditors on their behalf. So thinking about how data is being used in that way. The access to advice and guidance also, so financial advice, it may not be that you need debt, it might be that you've just got a load of surplus cash. And so an app being able to see that can help you um, perhaps access advice for the first time or help you in savings. So we have some good micro savings tools in the UK that are coming about. So this is where, you know, they use the data, they can see how much money is in my account. And without me really knowing or needing to know how much surplus I've got at the end of each month, or they can work out how much I can save and put small amounts of money aside for me regularly, using the account information to do that. So that's a really strong benefit of people beginning to save for the first time. And actually that helping not just wealthy people, but people on low incomes. So I was looking at some um, kind of testimonials from people using a savings app recently. And one was very clear, you know, I'm on a very low income. I've never saved before. This is the first time that I've managed to put some money aside for Christmas. That's a really positive, positive outcome. On the subject of Christmas, at the end of 2018, you posted the open banking Christmas mashup. And one of the lines in the song is, all I want for Christmas is value. Can you explain (laughs) what that means and why open banking has perhaps not yet provided the value that was promised? I think in terms of value, I think it comes back to this point that actually as individuals and communities and businesses, we are fed up of financial services products that take our money and don't deliver a lot of value in return. So I think it's about time that we want to see better products and services that respond to our needs and deliver value at a a price that's reasonable. That's all to do with the value exchange. But in terms of open banking, I think it's difficult to say it hasn't delivered. It's early days, really. If you think that it was just launched in 2018, that was also the point at which third-party providers could get regulated. I think the fact that we've actually already got products and services on the market that are delivering to consumers within that two-year time frame is not bad going. But I do think there are some challenges ahead that these services do need to be able to demonstrate that sharing your data and going through the faff of connecting your accounts and the insecurity of working with unfamiliar brands is actually worth it. And to do that, they have to create quite sophisticated products that they're protected. At the moment, we don't have great communication. So I think one of the challenges is that open banking has not kind of done a coordinated collaborative communications campaign which tells consumers you have data it is your right to choose to share it with whomsoever you please there are some great ways in which you can get value from sharing your data nobody's really telling them that loudly enough excellent 
Where can our guests find out more about you, your work at Fair for All Finance, Pay.UK, and your efforts to support the open banking movement? Thanks very much. Best to find me on LinkedIn. I do most of my posting there. I am a little bit on Twitter, but yeah, head to LinkedIn, Faith Reynolds. Faith, thank you so much for being on the show. That's great. It was lovely to join you. And thanks very much for inviting me. One does not have to look far to find critics of capitalism these days. Many people look at the existing financial system and feel that it is opaque and unfair. The scales tilted towards those who already have the most. Banks are often bundled into these criticisms with accusations that they make society less fair less just. In many places, trust between banks and their customers is at an all-time low. It doesn't have to be this way. The very idea of banking is one of the most powerful engines for economic growth that human beings have ever devised. It has led us to the building of great civilizations, untold scientific discoveries, and ultimately, the creation of the modern world. But more recently, banks have gotten a little stuck. Technology has pulled ahead of them, while their products remain anchored to a hundred years' worth of friction and legacy. As a result, they are leaving a lot of people disappointed, and a lot of other people completely in the dark. Open banking aims to change that. By enabling the secure exchange of financial data, it makes building custom-tailored products cheaper and easier, offering the right kind of services to help people who today are instead left financially vulnerable. Faith believes that the key is raising the bar on how open banking success is measured. Her work continues to loudly emphasize how open banking can be used for good. To get banking to more people, in ways that make sense to them. To drive behaviors that make us more financially literate and secure. To discover new ways that banks can genuinely improve the lives of those who use them. In turn, improving their relationship with their customers and restoring trust. Open banking enables banks to become what they are meant to be at their best. Engines of capitalism, to be sure, but also engines of social good. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years, 
and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.